0: Howdy and welcome to Episode 6 of For the Greater Defense with retired Colonel Matt Gill. On this episode, we'll be discussing his time at the Joint Multinational Training Center in Germany. Welcome back, Colonel Gill.
1: Howdy. It's great to be back.
0: So last episode, we left off uh, with you leaving 1st Cavalry and moving into the Joint Multinational Training Center. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what that center is and, and what the mission focus is?
1: Yeah, so Joint Multinational Readiness Training Center is in a little Bavarian village called Hohenfels. It's kind of uh, about two and a half hours north of Munich, kind of sitting out in the countryside. And uh, what it does is, uh, for European command, is it's the training center where we bring all the multinational forces, a part of NATO and their allies and friends, bring them together on this 10-kilometer wide 20 kilometer long plot of land and we, we do a little bit of simulated warfare and a lot of training exercises out there. But it's one of those places where you get essentially that Star Wars bar kind of theme to it is you know you'll bring in a company of Albanians and you know a battalion of Canadians and, and Latvians, Lithuanians, Romanians and and, and Ukrainians um, and bring them together, link them in with uh, the US military assets and we'll go out and fight you know simulated fighting. And do a lot of training. And, and it, was a, it was a wonderful assignment uh, to, to be a part of post being a G2.
0: What was it like working with all the different countries that were represented at the center?
1: Well, so the first thing I had to, to remind myself uh, was that some of these countries had fought each other in the last 50 years. And we're bringing them together underneath the, the NATO banner, the, the, the United States Army Europe banner, to train as allies. And so you quickly learn that sometimes those animosities are, are really just under just under the water, just a little bit, and the slightest thing can, can kind of get them talking about it again. And then the next thing I learned was that the U.S. military, we are so far advanced when it comes to digital communications and things like that, that a lot of the other former Soviet bloc states, Eastern European countries, they just don't use it. Uh, they don't use digital pathways to trade communications. And so we ended up having a, to really navigate human, procedural, and technical liaison between units. We're, well, gosh, how, how do, who are these people and what is their military culture? What can they do? Procedurally, how do they do things like fire artillery? Fly helicopters. It's a little bit different, and you've got to come up with a procedure so that everybody can not bump into each other in the air. Uh, and then the technical aspect of, like I mentioned, digital radio systems, uh, most people take for granted the electromagnetic spectrum, and they think that if they just key the microphone that it works. Well, what happens if the Brits, uh, our U.K. partners, have a radio that can't talk to the U.S. radio? Now, it, it can now. Uh, but what about those former Soviet bloc states? You know, what kind of radio assets and, and systems? And you, you have to kind of figure out how to bring all that together. Oh, and fight at the same time.
0: So. Yeah, I'm curious. How much did the cultural differences affect the way that uh, you fought as opposed to maybe the procedural or technical
1: Well, I think one thing uh, non-military people uh, can have a hard time understanding is that just because you say NATO or say alliance that everybody is truly allied, in the most case, they are. But in some cases, it just culturally, how how does the citizenry view war fighting and war? And then, oh, taking another step into the more controversial intelligence. So if you say you're an intelligence officer in a former Soviet bloc state... They're going to look at you differently than, say, here in America, Germany, uh, France. Uh, and so there's just uh, – there are cultural nuances. And then go back to the – some of these countries had fought each other in the last 50 years. And so they had grandparents and uncles
0: and, uh, and aunts that, that were victims of past conflict. How did you work to uh, bridge those cultural gaps when you got to the center?
1: So General Ben Hodges was the, the U.S. Army Europe commander at the time, and and he really uh, instilled in us, hey, these are people, these are our friends, these are our allies. So we started there, treating them like friends, treating them out like allies, not competitors, that we are all in it uh, for the security of Europe together. And I think that was just a great tone to take. General Cavoli came in after him, and he took the exact same tone. And I think once you, you show up in a training environment, there's this kind of, sense of competition always uh, and you know you just kind of get past that and don't compete with each other and you're here to compete with the enemy but you're also here to learn so you can't be uh, you have to be humble uh, when you're dealing with the Romanians or dealing with any of the other uh, Eastern European countries and I tell people to today the US Army intelligence apparatus spends millions of dollars on digital intelligence systems collection Uh, augmentation, uh, aggregation, and presentation tools. The Romanians don't use any of that. They use radios, they use knowledge, they use academics, they use maps, acetate, and grease pencils like we did back in World War II. What I found to be really interesting was that when I'd look at an American brigade who is very technically advanced, and I would take a photo of their intelligence picture, I would compare it to the Romanians. And then to what we called the God screen, which was essentially we could see everything on the battlefield. Um, The Romanians were always about 95 to 99% accurate, just grease pencils, maps, and radios. And U.S. forces were generally around the 60 to 80 percentile accuracy rate. So it it made me question okay, does advanced technology make us smarter? And I don't know the answer to that yet.
0: So why do you think the Romanians uh, were more accurate in their assessments?
1: Well, first, they've got a lot to lose. Let me just look at their border and look what's going on now in Ukraine. And I think they are just really good at the basics. And I think the the U.S. Army intelligence apparatus is going to continue to struggle with the identity crisis of advanced technology, or am I truly an intelligent professional? And I think the Romanians have gone all in. I'm going to be good at the basics. I know who my threat is. I know what they look like. I know how they work. Uh, and all I need is radios and, and a few
0: other sensors. Do you think there's some added value to that perspective as opposed to the technical perspective that the United States Army takes? Yes and no.
1: And so, one, you, sh- you have to always be good at the basics. Always be good at it. But then you have to kind of take a, you have to answer the question of, well, what does technology do for me? what is, What is artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, advanced sensors and ge- geospatial intelligence, and things like that. Is it additive to my brain and what I know, my academics and my experience? And if it's there to enable and it's there to be additive, uh, then it's great. But if we are expecting machines to do intelligence for us, then we are no longer the intelligent person in the cycle. We're expecting machines, artificial intelligence and data, to do it for us.
0: So in your position as a senior intelligence trainer there at the center, how did you translate your previous operational skills into teaching the art of intelligence to your team?
1: Okay, so my job as a senior intelligence officer was, one, to train intelligence – Uh, But also, I controlled the opposing force, the enemy. Uh, And we picked a country that was allocated to us, and we kind of organized that formation, that OP4, opposing force, around their tactics, their organization, and things like that. And what I learned studying decisive action training environment uh, through Fort Leavenworth, and then also just basic history and what was going on in Ukraine at the time, was... I needed to train these forces for their hardest day in combat. That is much different than a low-intensity conflict or a counterinsurgency. In this case, it is massive heavy metal. Uh, And I wanted to give them more problems than they could handle. And so every day, uh, the rotational unit, the training unit, uh, we would set out a movie script according to their training requirements and we would essentially take him to the very end of exhaustion every day, whether it's men, material, their ability to move. And, again, train for your hardest day in combat.
0: Can you give us a little bit more context on the situation in Crimea and Ukraine during this tour and how that impacted your time in the center?
1: Yeah, so there was a heavy nervous tension uh, at the training center. And not just, again, with in U.S. forces, but also with our allies. And in every rotation we had there— uh, General Hodges and General Kavoli were great about this. We had Ukrainian forces uh, at every rotation, regardless of what the rotation was about. And the training throughput and the presence of uh, the Ukrainian forces, whether it was special operations or armor or infantry or even service support, I think that really galvanized our allies. I don't know if the, the commander really thought that was going to do that, but it really galvanized all the other allies by seeing that yellow and blue patch every day out there in the training center. And and that that helped a whole lot.
0: So with the ongoing situation in Ukraine, how did the U.S. Army and the Joint Multinational Training Center begin to close the gap between what the real-world events that were occurring and uh, the training environment that you were in? So we were watching it very closely. Mm -hmm. Uh, The U.S. Army
1: Europe G2, a guy named Dave Pendle at the time, Uh, he and I were talking weekly. I would take the real-world intelligence scenario, everything that was going on in an unclassified manner, and when we would come up with threat scenarios during our rotations, Dave Pendle and I would actually try and recreate recent battles, recent techniques that we had seen the Russians use or the Ukrainians use, and we we would insert them into the training program so that NATO and its allies and friends, they would experience... Recent fights, recent battles, right there at the trading center, uh, without the cost of uh, of life, and I think that helped. The next piece is we we actually had forces in Ukraine at the time in Lviv uh, that were actively training Ukrainian forces in the battlefield. Some of the interesting pieces we had we had this uh, asymmetric warfare group, which is an organization that used to exist in the army, uh, originally designed to kind of study threat tactics in Iraq and Afghanistan. They pivoted really easily to Ukraine, and they would study certain things that Spetsnaz would do, the VDV, and, and just regular Russian infantry or Russian separatists, and we would come back to Hohenfels, and we would pick it apart. We would go, well, how did the Russians do this? From, from tooth to tail, from supply to execution, how were they able to execute this battle drill, this event, this sabotage? What were they doing with their infantry fighting vehicles versus their tanks? How were they employing them? And we'd go straight into the training environment uh, there at Hohenfels. We would literally recreate it, recreate the exact events as we were able to observe. And we would bring infantry and armor and uh, airborne leaders to the field to see it. And they would get the opportunity as unit commanders to you know, essentially play and replay that tactic that the Russians were using at the time. And I think we learned a ton of lessons of, uh, you know, a lot of people want to say that the Russians are 10 foot tall and bulletproof, and well, no, they're, they're eight feet tall and they wear body armor, so they have vulnerabilities. But at the time, they, they, they were pretty powerful. They were very creative uh, in, in the way they were choosing to fight.
0: In discussing how you prepared the scenario, you, you said that it was at the unclassified level. Is that a result of the multinational nature of the, the countries represented?
1: Well, we wanted to keep our scenario development at the unclassified level so that we could write about it and so that we could publish it and then we could get it out to the total Army force and all of our allies. So if you if you start writing at the classified level, you really bin who can see it. And, and nothing we were really doing required the means or the tools or the capabilities that were collecting classified information. It was all open to see, whether it was on Twitter which is what we're seeing today in, in Ukraine, or it was in the news. We were, we were able to see it. So keeping it unclassified absolutely let us disseminate it across a
0: wide breadth. And how does that fuel lessons on the importance of open source intelligence for, uh, for the intelligence community and the Army for you? So
1: I think we're going to have to come to grips with this. In my opinion, about 75% of the available intelligence today is, is available in the open source venue. Uh, open source meaning the open Internet uh, readily available. Um, that there, There's still a unique capability. We can't discuss on this podcast that the U.S. government has, and our allies have some unique capability. But the majority of it you're seeing play out on the news. Everybody has an iPhone or whatever type of cellular device. Almost, well, virtually all of them have cameras. They all have microphones, and therefore everybody can take a video. They can upload it to name your social media site for all to see. Today, you have chat boards like Reddit that are just republishing Twitter and, and people's personal uh, iPhone uh, or Samsung or name the device. And, and I think that has created goodness that you can see the world very quickly. But also, there are some issues when it comes to the volume, just the sheer volume volume of intelligence that's out there available on open source.
0: Well, in closing out your time with the Joint Multinational Training Center, what leadership lessons did you learn during this tour uh, that you can share with our audience? Yeah, words matter.
1: Words absolutely matter. Uh, You can talk to an American soldier one way, but you can't talk to an ally a different way. And... You've got to, as a senior leader in the Army, you've got to be able to absorb cultures and be able to speak to them the way uh, that they communicate, whether it's culturally or colloquially. But words do matter. So every time as a senior leader that you open your mouth to say something, you better have thought about it long and hard about who your audience is because you can make or break alliances based on what you said. The next lesson I learned as senior leader is something I, I teach you all is that the number one hallmark of a, of a really good intelligence professional is creativity. If we had just kind of followed the playbook there at JMRC and kind of trained every day based on doctrine and the manuals, we'd have done fine. We'd have gone pretty far. But I think it was my boss, uh, then uh, Colonel Curtis Buzzard, he was the chief operations group, now major general, he really instilled in us creativity, Close the gap between what is going on in the real world and, and bring it to the training center, Gil. And, and I think those two things, words matter and creativity, were the, the biggest lessons I learned as, a, as a, at that point in time, a, a senior uh, lieutenant colonel in the Army.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. And this will close out your time in Germany. So, what is next for you on your career timeline?
1: Yep. So, I, I, I really didn't know. And, uh, you know, am I going to keep going on or was this kind of it? Is somebody, am I going to extinguish the candle on my island or, or flip off the light? And, uh, and that's when I got another one of those fateful calls uh, that said, Hey, Matt, congratulations. Uh, you've been selected for 06, I was going to be promoted to uh, full colonel. And, oh, by the way, you're going to the war college. My quick response was, you know, but I really don't want to go to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. My family's in Texas, and, and I'd really like to stay there. And they said, well, no problem. You're actually going to go be an academic fellow at the University of Texas in Austin, and then you're going to go back to Fort Hood to be the three Corps G2. And at, at that point in time, I would kind of uh, felt like I you know, took a deep breath, and I would hit the trifecta. I was getting promoted. I was going to the War College, and I was, had been selected to command at the, at the 06 level.
0: We'll start off next week talking about that, uh, your time as a War College fellow, but thank you for being with us this week again. Gig'em. Gig'em.